Hello and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I and I Think You're Interesting, and it is the 50th anniversary of one of my favorite movies. 2001, A Space Odyssey was released in April of 1968. First time I saw it. It's summer of 1998 when they released the first American Film Institute list of the 100 greatest American movies of all time. Every week, Turner Classic Movies would show movies from that list on a certain night. And it's the middle of the summer. I don't have to be at school the next day. It's 10 p.m. I'm watching TV with my sister. 2001 starts up, and I turn to her and say, have you ever seen this? Of course she hadn't. She was like 13. And I was like, I've never seen it. Let's watch it. And this is a movie that is over two hours long. We are, you know, probably should not be staying up this late. Our parents would be very mad if they found us. But we get through the movie. We see the man-apes. We see the monolith. We see the famed visions of the future. We see the spaceship. We see the bone fly up into the air and turn into a spaceship. We hear the music. And it's just mind-blowing. And it ends with this weird hallucinatory journey through like whatever the next stage of human evolution is. And of course, I don't know that at the time. I'm just a teenager. My sister's just a teenager. But we get done with the movie and the credits roll. It's now well past midnight. We should have been in bed long ago. And my sister says, what was that? And I'm just like, I think it was great. People love 2001. It is the sixth greatest movie of all time, according to the Sight and Sound poll. Every time I see it, I take something new away from it. And it feels to me like that is true of a lot of people with this movie. So today we're going to talk with Alyssa Wilkinson, Box's film critic, about this movie's place in history. And then we're going to talk with Michael Benson. He wrote a book called Space Odyssey, which is just a complete telling of how this movie was made from just the kernel of an idea that Stanley Kubrick, the director, and Arthur C. Clarke, the famous science fiction writer, had together to the point when it was released to initially savage reviews and then was sort of rehabilitated immediately by big box office. So I think you're going to like this, especially if you like the movie. If you've never seen it, I promise you we're going to tell you so many reasons you should see it. So stick around. You're going to get a great experience. We are opening today's episode with Alyssa Wilkinson. She is the film critic at Vox. Alyssa, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. I talked a little bit in the intro about my experiences with 2001, and I kind of wanted to hear, like, what was your first experience, and what have you sort of thought of the movie over the years? Yeah, I didn't see it till I was an adult. Um, I was in my 20s. And I'm pretty sure, given how much of pop culture references the film in funny ways or serious ways, that I'd probably run into a bunch of references in the past. But the first time I actually sat down to watch the movie, I was in my 20s. And I was watching it on DVD on my couch with my husband, which is not the ideal setting for that film, but a decent one. And What I remember most clearly, besides it being kind of amazing and weird and strange, was that near the end, when there's sort of like all these bright lights and colors and movement through the galaxy and like a baby floating over the earth, I was dozing off. And I remember not being sure if I was actually dozing off. It felt like dream logic was happening. I didn't know what was going on. We actually had to rewind and and watch the last half hour again to make sure that what I thought I'd seen, I'd actually seen. But of course, like since then, once you see that movie, you see it everywhere. It's like so seminal for science fiction and also for many, many, many other things. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that it's one of those movies. The Simpsons writers, they talk about movies where they've parodied so many elements of them that you could reconstruct the movie from Simpsons parodies. Uh, and 2001 is, is right up there with that. What do you think it is that made it such a, a seminal film? Uh, like as a critic, when you look at it, what are the things that made it stand out? I think when you look at a movie like this, you have to really put it into its context historically. You know, we're used to seeing high concept sci-fi now, I think, but it came out in 1968, which was quite a year to begin with. And I think the context, the world it came out into was sort of in turmoil and things were pretty crazy at the time and psychedelic drugs were part of the culture and there were all these things going on and high concept science fiction to the degree that Kubrick was trying to pull off just didn't really exist. Um, He's such a visual filmmaker that, 
you know, the experience of watching 2001 is not really about the plot or the mechanics or the world building even as much as the experience. It's like being bathed in an experience. A friend of mine was talking about how his dad said there were all these people who used to drop acid and then go lay on the floor of the movie theater to, like, become one with the movie. It was just a really huge cultural experience that also you know, basically was without precedent in science fiction. And it's interesting because it's not just fantastical or, you know, psychedelic to watch. I mean, Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke that he wrote the film with, they they were very bent on making sure that it picked up on science and technology and was kind of scientifically plausible. And that means that there's some grounding in our reality. But way back in 1968, when, you know, space and and scientific discovery in outer space was still often the stuff of dreams instead of the stuff of of kind of the past, the way we sometimes think about it now. It really is a movie that is tremendously effective in terms of like telling a story without giving you a lot of the crutches that most storytelling has. I'm going to be talking with Michael Benson, who wrote a book about the movie in a second, and he really talks about how much Kubrick tried to remove all of the usual narrative handholds. And it's crazy, but it's also like a hugely influential science fiction movie. I'm wondering what you think its place is in the sci-fi canon. Like, what were science fiction movies like before this and what have they been like after it? I mean, a lot of what science fiction, I think, had done and, and has always done is try to envision a possible future based on the science of today and the science of the future. And and it wasn't like that had never happened in film before, obviously. In fact, you know, one of the earliest films is about blasting off into space on a rocket and landing on the moon. So that's that's not unusual. But I think one thing Kubrick really did well was pick up on the whole entire arc of human history, like tried to get the whole thing into one movie and yet center it on a person, you know, and a computer that felt very much like of our time. So, you know, it starts with like literally the dawn of time and it ends kind of off in a future we can't imagine. And I think that has captured a lot of filmmakers. You know, one person who <laughs> who I think did this in, in his own way was um, Darren Aronofsky when he made The Fountain, which is very much, again, a film that's about the past, the future, sort of almost like human life keeps regenerating itself. And that just makes you feel like you're in the middle of something very large. But it also is a very high concept sci-fi movie. I mean, it really, it, it's about how technology could take over us. You know, it sort of picks up on those anxieties that somebody might have had, you know, in 1968 at the dawn of the computer age. And I think you see that echoed in movies that range from, you know, Interstellar, for instance, Christopher Nolan's film, all the way to WALL-E, which I think is one of the best possible homages uh, and extrapolations of 2001, where, you know, it's, it's about humanity kind of needing to save itself from itself. There are elements of that in here, too. But at the end of the day, Kubrick actually told people that the narrative plot of 2001 was about man's search for God and that he was trying to give a scientific definition of God in the film, which I read somewhere that at one of the original premieres, some guy actually burst through the movie screen (laughs) yelling, it's God, it's God. So I guess it worked. That's amazing. That is a question I want to ask you about because you're a critic who often applies sort of a lens of religion or theology or faith to what is up on screen. And 2001 is a very rich movie to do that with. So kind of when you look at the movie through that lens, what do you see? It's like a really interesting movie from that perspective because it does lean so heavily on Science, you know, it really is trying to look through the lens of modern science to explain things that um, have been considered mythical or mystical. You know, right, right from the beginning of the movie, it sort of it gives us this, you know, evolving kind of human race that needs something to be in awe of, or or to worship, or to follow, or whatever. However, you want to think about it. And, you know, when it kind of moves into the the middle section with Hal, the computer, and you kind of see how people are starting to think of computers and artificial intelligences as like the next evolution of humankind. And what would that mean for us as the highest intelligence? Is that a new thing that um, is going to control us or something that we need to 
you know, worship in a sense, uh, maybe not in a traditionally religious sense, but it's something that that's overarching. And then when it moves into its final section, I mean, that that entire section is so mystical and mythical. It feels like a return to like a pre-human age or something like that. So the idea that the universe, I think, predates us and can outlast us is in essence, a a thing that religion is always looking for. And I think the film does a really good job of making us feel tiny in the midst of that. Yeah. One of the most famous images from the movie to me is the monolith with this giant black obsidian slab that when the ape man predecessors of humanity touch it, they get knowledge or something. And then at the end of the movie, Dave Bowman, the closest thing the movie has to a hero, I guess can be called. Uh, he touches it as well and it evolves into whatever our next form is. And it's, it's very mysterious and strange and weird and very much like it takes the form of what God would be like in a medieval mystery play. It's really an interesting look at what it would be like to be confronted with something so strange and unusual and out there. But we've talked a lot about Stanley Kubrick, and I'm going to be talking a lot about him with Michael Benson. But I'd love to get your perspective on who he was and why he's important to film history and what he's most famous for if you were discussing him as a critic. Kubrick is so important. I think a lot of young critics especially really latch on to Kubrick early on because all of his work is is just like it's like nothing you've really seen before and yet it's like something you have seen before like you know when you're watching Kubrick's films that he has inspired so many filmmakers that you know people might watch today. And there's different things that mark his work. They're not really plot related, they're more about style. He's known as a very visual filmmaker. I also always feel as if his films don't, you know, they make sense narratively, but they don't follow kind of the plot logic that we're used to. He really doesn't like to give you rails to follow what's going on. So things will happen and they feel unexplained, but then they kind of intuitively work for you. And then he gets these really almost like out-of-body performances out of his actors. And, of course, the reason for this is he's he famously had them shoot like dozens, if not hundreds, of takes you know, for their different scenes. I mean, the stories about shooting The Shining are just insane. There was one scene that they shot something like 130 times. And, you know, that that's, I think Nicole Kidman set, has said, like, that's basically makes you stop thinking about your craft and just kind of move into a different kind of almost like a fugue state <laughs> of acting. And I think that has a real big effect. I mean, and there are other directors who work that way. I mean, David Fincher works that way sometimes, just trying to get something different out of their actors. So he's famously, famously demanding. And yet at the same time, he wasn't he wasn't entirely sterile about it. He was known for working with the actors to improvise and try and find the right line um, and the right way to deliver that line. Um, so he wasn't stuck to the screenplay in the way that some directors who are very demanding have been. So it seems like people both kind of feared him and also just really liked working with him because, you know, they were working in a totally different way with him. In the book, Benson talks about how Kubrick didn't always know, like when he was directing actors, he didn't always know what he wanted but he would just sort of keep going until he got it. And that led them to, you know, feeling very frustrated, but also doing all of these takes. He also talks about how Kubrick inspired this immense reverence and people who are, I'm never going to get to work with somebody like this again, would be like what they'd say. So I'm willing to follow him, you know, over whatever cliff. And like, I've, I've been thinking about that a lot in terms of what we've been talking about recently about difficult directors and, and, you know, like there are obviously people whose behavior is wrong, is abusive, is criminal, but then there are people who are just like, they really push people to their limits. And Kubrick is a name who's come up in that discussion. And I'm wondering what you think about him in terms of that conversation we're having. There is a kind of, artist who wants to be pushed beyond their limits and knows they need to be. And I understand this as a writer, too. I mean, I've worked with editors who have pushed me harder than I might have liked to, and sometimes it felt cruel. <laughs> and then at the end of the day, I know the work I turned out was better for it, and I value that experience as someone who tries to make things. And so, you know, I think it is a testament to him that you don't hear these um these sorts of stories that make you wince so much as think like, wow, that would have been really difficult. And I think those are two different things. I try not to idolize people who are difficult because um, I think that's a bad precedent. And I think that's, you know, contributed a lot to um, the sorts of things we're seeing coming out of Hollywood right now with 
you know, particularly controlling and abusive men. You know, it's not at all clear to me that that's the case in this in this um, scenario. And I also don't want to see us throw out the exacting and perfectionist artists just purely because of of the amount of takes that they have to do and the, the insane sort of perfectionism of their work. 2001 has kind of a similarity with a lot of Kubrick's other films, especially like The Shining, Barry Lyndon. Some of these other movies have been written off as kind of clinical and cold by a certain strain of critic. You know, I think that opinion has shifted. But what do you respond to in that sense of that 2001 is too much of a cold film without enough humanity in it? It is a cold film. Its most memorable character is is not a human. It's Hal, the the sort of blinking red light computer. But at the same time, if you can kind of surrender yourself to the film and sink down into what it's doing, it really wants to draw the viewer into the movie and make them feel like I'm part of this. And it operates in a way that's very kind of uncanny and uncomfortable. And you can't hold on to anything when you're watching a film like that. You really have to have to let go in order to experience it in the way it wants to be experienced. And I think learning to watch movies well is always just kind of a, a way of of understanding how to watch a movie at all, how to let it tell you what to do with it. And 2001 is not considered a masterpiece just because critics like difficult movies or something. It's because it, it really is um, affecting and unnerving in the ways that it wants to be. If you can kind of let go of your need to have like a sympathetic character or something like that. Well, the movie is filled with so many memorable images and so many memorable moments and things like that. And it's just sort of as we're wrapping up here, I want to ask you, when you think about this movie, what's the first thing you think of or what is one thing that really stands out to you? I mean, I think it may just be because I watched that last scene a number of times, but I think the part that sort of moves beyond all rationality near the end where, yeah, again, where we have sort of these images that are trying to evoke or almost provoke something in your brain synapses. That really sticks with me, I think, because the film really is about how intelligence births another intelligence births another intelligence. And it feels like this is actually trying to kind of birth a different intelligence in the audience. And I mean, audiences reacted to it that way. Again, like people would, you know, take all kinds of drugs and then go watch the movie and try to kind of reach a higher plane of consciousness. I certainly have not done that, but I can understand why the film um, provokes that in you because it really is about this sort of trying to move towards something that's bigger and larger and um, kind of in the parlance of the internet, the galaxy brain of films right there at the end. It is that meme in and of itself, but I think in the best way. Yeah, 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 yeah. I always think of the low angle shot of the monolith, like looking up at it with the Hungarian composer Legete, his, his music, which is sort of ethereal, like a choir kind of wailing, sounding like ghosts or something. And that for me is always what sticks out from the movie. Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us. You always give us a great context for these movies. Thanks for having me. And we're going to be joined by Michael Benson in just a moment. So my guest is the author of Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick, Arthur C. Clarke, and the making of a masterpiece. Michael Benson, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm really glad to be here. I love this movie, and I learned like everything I'd ever want to know about it from reading this book. Um, <laughs> I was amazed the level of detail, the level of uh, stories you found, just like the, the amazing depth that goes into and everything if you are a fan of this movie if you're just a fan of movies i should say you this is this is well worth reading tell me just a little bit about like what's your history with 2001 what made you think okay i want to write like the book about this movie well i hope it's the book um i'd like to think it's the book my history started in 1968 i was six years old my mom was an arthur c clark fan and she took me to an afternoon matinee I believe it, is, it was in New York City, but you know, there's been a debate between my mom and myself <laughs> about that. And I was just staggered by the film, absolutely amazed, you know. Um, I think it was the first work of art that truly hit me where I lived, you know. Mm -hmm. And, of course, at age six, you know, your sensors are wide open. But yeah. it really got me. And, um, you know, it's a cliche to say something changed your life. But in this case, I think it probably did. And um, I saw it many times after that. And I got to know Arthur Clarke, by the way, and, and I met him in the year 2001, in fact. Mm. And um, I thought, really, one of these days I should engage with this film in a meaningful way. Yeah. And when I became aware that the 50th anniversary was coming up, 
um, I thought I should try and try to get a deal. So I wrote a proposal. Uh, Simon and Schuster was interested, and so were other people. Yeah. And I'm um, happy to say it worked out, and I managed to get the thing done in time. You mentioned in the notes that you had talked to Arthur C. Clarke throughout the last years of his life. I'm wondering, like, how many other folks associated with this movie are still alive that you could talk to? Because obviously Stanley Kubrick died in uh, 1999. You know, there's a lot of the people involved with the film have passed on. But, like, how many people were you able to track down and talk to? Well, very fortuitously, Kubrick had a tendency to find really young men. It was almost mm -hmm. exclusively men, late teens, early 20s who he judged to be smart and potentially talented. He would invest in them mm -hmm. and give them responsibility. And, and most of them turned out to be, you know, really interesting and talented people. So most of them are still around, and I got to know a bunch of them. And then also um, a little bit older but still with us <laughs> is Dan Richter, who mm -hmm. played the lead man-ape. I, I did speak to Keir DeLay and Gary Lockwood, the two leads in the spacecraft, the two lead astronauts, I should say. While they had both told their story many, many times, and sometimes you get a feeling that, um, also when I spoke to Arthur, I got the feeling that he had told the story about 2001 so many times that it can be hard to get past the firewall of prepackaged stories into the the you know into new material. With both of them, I felt that I did. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, and also with Arthur. Certainly there are stories in this book that I had never heard before, and I'm someone who reads a lot about movies and reads a lot about the movies I love. So I, if you are – even if you're skeptical about the book uh, and, and are a fan of the film, I think you'll find something new in here. 2001 is one of those movies that everybody, even if they haven't seen it, they think they know. It's kind of funny because uh, I was talking with – my wife today who's never seen it but she's seen like all the Simpsons parodies of it so she kind of <laughs> has like an idea of it and I was talking with my producer uh, who just watched it for the first time over the weekend and was like oh that's where that comes from mm -hmm. um, so I had these conversations about like people who knew the movie even if they hadn't seen the movie so I want to talk about some of the famous elements of the movie and maybe we can delve into where they came from as we as we go through the hour sure. I want to start with the most famous music cue in the movie uh, the Strauss you know that da 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 which plays over the um, sunrise or moonrise or whatever the opening yeah. sequence with the sun rising over the earth and the moon mm -hmm. and it's thus spake Zarathustra there you go so uh, it was based on not based on but referring to the Nietzsche a philosophical novel. Yeah. But that is the kind of the signature track, yeah. let's say. Yeah. Although there are others. I mean, and in fact, the music of Ligeti, you know, the Hungarian avant-garde composer, uh, that film would not be remotely the same if Kubrick hadn't stumbled on via his wife and Con Pedersen's wife this Ligeti music. And by that, I mean Christian Kubrick and Con's wife, whose name I don't remember at the moment, were... Um, working together, making sculptures of aliens for Stanley. We're yeah. talking now fall of 67. And uh, listening to the BBC, and on came this music, which was so unearthly and spooky and powerful and majestic that they immediately had to find out what it was. They waited until they announced, you know, the DJ... If you can say that about classical music, I don't think you have DJs actually. They, <laughs> the host of the program um, said this is Ligeti, you know, and and so uh, then um, it took him weeks to hear the piece because Ligeti was almost completely unknown then. Right. I do have in the book a series of stories about how that music, the music that was used, came into the film and yeah. and what kind of discussions surrounded it and so forth. What was fascinating to me was. Kubrick went through like four composers who were going to write original music for the film, and then eventually he was like, I like my, I like my temp tracks better. Tell me a little bit about that process. With the initial um, composers, like Frank Cordell was an English composer who had really uh, established a track record um, scoring various films in the UK and so on, and he was brought on in the beginning. But Kubrick didn't know what he wanted, you know, and Cordell was brought on, and um, and, you know, given a contract and given pay, but he'd but he not given access to Stanley, who didn't want to talk to him. Yeah. So it was very bizarre. Finally, when he did get a chance to talk to, to Stanley, Stanley said, well, um, I like Mahler, Gustav Mahler's symphony, which refers to the Spake Zarathustra, which is the English translation of also Sprach Zarathustra. Mm -hmm. You see, I'm showing off that I can pronounce this. <laughs> um, but then Cordell, it just didn't work out with Cordell. Meanwhile, um, Kubrick was... Um, approaching various other people whose taste he valued. And one of the people, by the way, was Jan Harlan, right. which is his brother-in-law, Christian's brother. 
and asking for advice. And then um, it was kind of a roundabout. It was a very circuitous route to those temp tracks. So when he was finally cutting the film, he started laying in this music that he'd been amassing during post and even during production. He would watch the rushes and listen to music, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one of the key catalysts was when the MGM brass flew in from L.A. and from New York. I have a great story where Tony Fruin, who was like 19 years old or something, uh, you know, the weekend, the week before the MGM brass flew in, Kubrick said, Tony, Tony, get petty cash, you know, get this much money and go buy all the classical music you can find downtown. Um, None of that musique concrete shit is what he said. And so Fruin, you know, couldn't believe his luck because the amount of money he got was enough to buy the store, basically. And he took a station wagon, an MGM station wagon downtown and brought it back. He said he was worried the police would pull him over because it was was sagging because of all the vinyl inside. Yeah. And then they sat there uh, that weekend and for days afterwards and Kubrick would sit there and hand him a record and Tony would put it on the turntable and they'd listen to the beginning of each track for a period of time. So there was obviously a lot of due diligence going on there. And then just to finish that story about the composer, so then finally, um, really late in the story, we're talking the end of 67, the, the, basically the studio did not want to hear about temp tracks for a big budget Hollywood, you know, Cinerama release. Right. I mean, that was just not done. Because, you know, you couldn't release those things without an original score. That was just the way things were done. And that so was they, part of the appeal of, like, the audience to come in and hear the new original music. Right? Everything new. Everything yeah. original. Exactly. So they pressured him, essentially, to hire Alex, hire a composer. And he chose Alex North, who he had worked with on Spartacus. And Alex North was a very well-known, remains a well-known Hollywood, you know, composer. Uh, he did a number of other scores, you know, won awards and so forth. And he was originally, when he heard that Kubrick wanted him on, was thrilled because he understood there was 40 minutes of dialogue in a two and a half hour movie. And he naively thought, oh, that means I can, you know, I have a blank canvas. I can do what I want, you know, but um, didn't really work out that way. Kubrick, at their first meeting, said he wanted to hold on to some of the temp tracks. Alex North persuaded Stanley Kubrick, you know, that he could do it you know, replace the temp tracks with material that would be similar in mood or spirit or what have you. But he was competing against some of the masterworks of, yeah. of, the, of the canon. Yeah. You know, the two Strausses, Ligeti, et cetera. He did record a score. He almost had a nervous breakdown mm. doing it because of all the pressure. In fact, he was in a stretcher. He was in a hospital bed on wheels that was rolled into the recording sessions because he had muscle spasms in his back from all the pressure. He recorded a score that, you know, a lot of people say was really very good. Um, Kubrick didn't like it. Yeah. You know, he didn't inform North that he didn't use any of it. Uh, yeah. And North came to the premiere in New York and was completely shocked to see and humiliated that not one piece of his music had been used. So the mm-hmm. temp tracks were what stayed in. Do you know if the, any of those, any of that composed music survived? Is it in a vault somewhere? Uh, it was re-released, or it was released, I should say. It was not re-released. <laughs> it was released for the first time um, a few years ago. Oh, I okay. forget the label, but it is out there. If you Google Alex North 2001 score, you will find, you know, you'll find wow. a way to get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, we keep talking sort of about the timeline, and I kind of want to clarify, like, Clark and Kubrick started kind of talking about what the movie would look like in 64, right? On the yep. heels of uh, Dr. Strangelove, which was Kubrick's previous film. And then it's not released until April of 68. We're here in the 50th anniversary of it. That seems like a it, it was longer than they were expecting. It was, it was definitely longer there than they were expecting. And part of the reason is the visual effects took a lot longer than they at first naively thought they would. And that's mm-hmm. because... Um, they were inventing everything as they went along. I mean, you know, if, if you look at visual effects on films pre-2001 for spaceflight, you will find all kinds of clumsy and, you know, totally inadequate and kitschy stuff. You can see the optical printing and high grain. And, you know, yeah. it's obviously a model in a, <laughs> in a black room, a model you spaceship. The, you can see the wires. You can see the wire. Yeah. I mean, there was some stuff that was acceptable in some, on some, way, in some ways. And, and in fact, the, for example, the, the National Film Board of Canada um, had funded a film called Universe mm. in 1960 in black and white, interestingly enough. And it was a half hour look at 
galaxies, nebulae, planets, and so forth. And the visual effects in it, which were all analog, were way pre-digital here, were quite impressive. Mm-hmm. And Kubrick loved it and, and you know, wore out the print as Wally Gentleman, who was the visual effects guy behind that film, put it. Yeah. Um, and he was hired by Kubrick to work on 2001, and he stayed for about a year before he had to leave. They didn't see eye to eye. After they finished the live-action production, there were many, many, many problems to solve uh, when it came to visual effects. And then also the Dawn of Man sequence, the Man-Ape prelude. It was just not believable enough. The costumes weren't believable, believable enough. Where they were going to shoot it wasn't clear. You know, so, it yeah, it took a long time. That's a really good transition to kind of the second thing I wanted to talk about that everybody knows about this movie, which is that prelude, the man-apes, the sort of touching the monolith and evolving to the next stage. It's such a, it's such an indicator of what you're going to get when you sit down to watch this movie. It's like, okay, here's the scope of this movie. But uh, it sounds like it was in the idea for the film from the very first, like they really wanted, not from the very first, but very early on, they hit on, we want to go back to prehistory. Can you talk a little bit about Arthur C. Clarke, how his story sort of gave rise to that sequence? You know? Sure. Well, so early on in 64, uh, they, you know, as you said, they met for the first time in April 64, mm-hmm. Arthur Clarke and, and Stanley Kubrick, and they were brainstorming for quite a long time and really, you know, 10 hour marathon talking sessions about what to do. Clark already had a significant body of work, several novels and a lot of short stories. One of the short stories was The Sentinel, which was about the discovery on the moon of an object by a you know, lunar expedition. They discovered a pyramid-shaped object that had, by the end of the story, they're convinced it was, an, it was put there by an alien race millions of years before as a kind of burglar alarm or early warning system warning the, the species that put it there that creatures capable of spaceflight had evolved on Earth. Mm. That, that became the core of the story, and the pyramid-shaped object became the monolith in 2001. But another story that was actually not even optioned by Kubrick, interestingly enough, because mm. he optioned, I think it was six stories, and then sold the rights back to Clark later when it became clear that only the Sentinel, the one with the pyramid, was, was really being used. Another story that Clark wrote in the 50s was called Encounter in the Dawn. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have the Dawn of Man. Is yeah. the pre- it was about uh, an a- alien survey expedition of anthropologists <laughs> yeah. who arrived at early Earth and discovered this tribe of savages, savage homo sapiens, you know. <laughs> so it was actually, I don't think it was pre-humans like in a 2001. Their work was to bring them out of savagery, you know, as quickly as possible and to study them at the same time. But then in the story, the galactic empire that had sent these these uh, researchers was collapsing, which is kind of an echo of Asimov in a way. Right. Um, and they were recalled early. And so that you have a scene at the end where the alien anthropologist is speaking to the, you know, early human uh, who, who doesn't understand what he's saying, you know, and he says... Um, we have to leave, and if I, if we could stay, we could have brought you out of savagery in, in just a few generations. But now I'm afraid it's going to take you it's going to yeah. take you a lot longer. And then he leaves him with some tools, including a, a knife. Mm-hmm. I think there's a line, you know, the likes of which will not be seen on Earth again for thousands of years, or something like that. Right. So he leaves a tool. Mm-hmm. That's the seed of Dawn of Man in a way, along with other inputs, including uh, Robert Ardrey's best-selling book uh, in, in the 60s, and the name of it is... Uh, it's African something. I, I, I'll look it up here. African Genesis. African Genesis. Yes, there you go. that's right. Best-seller. That's right. Um, and so that was very influential. The core of the idea there was that our forebears succeeded because they became carnivorous killer apes, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Robert Ardrey's book, best-selling mm-hmm. book. That yeah. led to the dawn of man. So one of the things I really love, the the chapter about creating and filming the dawn of man is probably my favorite in the book. And a lot of it's because of Dan Richter, who you talked about a little bit briefly before, but he's such a fascinating guy. He's this uh, he's this mime who like came in and, and essentially came up with a lot of like the movements, how these creatures were going to move. I'm fascinated by his process. So could you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, Dan, I, I got to spend a couple days with him. He told me, for example, that when he was growing up, he used to have all these animals. He was very empathetic towards animals. Mm -hmm. He even had a monkey 
and he spent a lot of time with it. I forget what kind. I think a rhesus monkey. Mm. And he was really the right guy. And then, I mean, the right guy to work on animal movement and to um, kind of incarnate a proto-human. You know, yeah. he was um, good at studying animals and, and thinking about how they might think. And plus, he was um, he had been the lead performer in the American Mime Theater, mm-hmm. which fused European mime techniques with method acting values. Mm-hmm. And so it was a uniquely American discipline. In fact, it was a New York discipline, this American Mime Theater. Because in European mime, it wasn't necessarily about becoming a character. Um, and Dan used to do half-hour performances, you know, grueling half-hour performances where he would you know, he would be several different types of pinball in a pinball machine. Mm. You know, the one that succeeds and the loser pinball. He was really good. Yeah. And then after, you know, visiting Japan, get, becoming friends with Yoko Ono long before she met John uh, Lennon, and then time in, spent in Athens, and then he moved to London, um, acquired a heroin addiction along the way, by the way. And one reason he's so fascinating is he was a hardcore addict yeah. um, throughout the production so then he, um, a friend of his heard about how Kubrick was having trouble solving, uh, actually an insider, it was Clark, Arthur Clark's boyfriend, Mike Wilson. There was high security about what was going on in the studio. Mm-hmm. But as it happened, Mike Wilson knew Clark's boyfriend and uh, happened to comment to a friend, Arthur and Stanley think that, that maybe a mime could help. Yeah. You know, and this person knew Dan said, oh, I know a mime. He's a really good mime. You know, so contacted Dan. Dan went to Borehamwood, you know, MGM Studios in in England, had a meeting with Kubrick, didn't suspect for a minute that he might be auditioned himself. He mm-hmm. thought he was going to be advising. Immediately understood that no matter what you do, you're going to have men stuffed into ape suits yeah. unless you really deal with the acting values, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, convinced Kubrick of this. And then Kubrick said, well, I like what you're saying, mm-hmm. but I don't know you, and you have a kind of a thin resume, you know, with all due respect, and so how do I know what you're saying is true? And then Dan said, oh, well, just give me 15 minutes, uh, a leotard, some towels, and a stage. <laughs> 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 and so they did that, and um, Richter came out. Um, you know, he suddenly became aware, by the way, that this was not just advising Kubrick, that he was suddenly going to be auditioning in front of one of the leading directors in the world, and he right. got a little – he got nervous for a little – for a minute or two. Then he called forth this character that he played with on stage previously named Joe, kind of a dim-witted, pushy guy. It's mm-hmm. really amusing the way he told this story to me. Um, you know, he had a little dialogue with this character that only lived in him on stage, you know. Yeah. He talked yeah. to Joe, Joe, we're going to pretend we're, we're man-apes now, and we're going out on stage, you know. Dan said to me, Joe didn't think this was a very good idea, but I, I convinced him to do it. So um, he put on this leotard and put on, you know, bulked up his shoulders with towels and yeah. went out. And uh, at first he was this pushy, stupid, dim-witted man-ape, you know, kind of prowling around the stage. And then Kubrick was uh, all ready to say, excellent, you know. Mm. But, but when Kubrick said something after about 10 minutes or five minutes of performance, you know, Dan jumped back like he was he was still in character, and he he scurried off the stage, and then he came back as a as a much more shy, tentative man ape, yeah. you know, yeah. to show that you could have these different characters. Mm. And then he was he was hired immediately, and the rest is history, basically. Yeah, I wish I had the confidence to say uh, I need fifteen minutes, some towels, a leotard, and a stage. <laughs> Well, it helps to have a lot of heroin in your system sometimes. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> I think that one of the things I, points you make throughout, especially the second half of the book, is that a lot of the film was so far advanced that people didn't understand how far advanced it was. Like, a, like the makeup effects, especially, are tremendous. But a lot of people like didn't quite get how tremendous they were. Why? Why do you think that was? Well, so Dan then proceeded to collaborate with Stuart Freeborn, one mm-hmm. of the great artists in the history of makeup. So Freeborn is best known for his Star Wars work. Oh, you wow. know, he's behind the Wookiee. I mean, he could have done a Wookiee in his sleep after doing the Man Apes <laughs> in 2001. But he was also behind Yoda. Mm. Yoda is actually a fusion of Stuart Freeborn's face and Albert Einstein's face. Huh. And then a lot of other characters in Star Wars. And, you know, he's just absolute virtuoso. So when Dan first met Stuart, Stuart had these kind of thick man-ape suits that mm. looked good when they weren't moving – 
but they were too thick. And Dan said, you know, I just can't work with this. And he mm-hmm. had to be frank about it. They worked together for months and months and months to make the suits thin so you could express. So the actor inside, the mime or the dancer inside, they ended up finding a bunch of dancers, you know, to work with, with Dan, could express themselves through the thin skin of the of the costume. Yeah. But where, where Freeborn really proved himself to be a complete virtuoso was the masks, mm. where um, facial all kinds of facial expressions could be conveyed by the by the actor inside with you know with an ingenious system of toggles and 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 lines and um, you know the tongue they could stick their tongue inside an artificial tongue. You yeah, know? yeah. You know, you'd really portray the relationship between Kubrick and Freeborn, because Kubrick would keep pushing Freeborn, would keep saying, you know, I need, I need the ape to be able to snarl. Uh, I need the mother apes to be able to nurse their babies. Like all these seemingly impossible demands, and like Freeborn would go and solve it. And that's kind of Kubrick's relationship with a lot of his collaborators in a nutshell, where. He would ask for seemingly the impossible, and then they would want to give it to him. Mm-hmm. What, what was it about him that inspired that sort of uh, – there are some people who were very turned off by him and sort of left the project because of that. But like mm-hmm. most of them were very wanting to, to do that. So what, what inspired that sort of loyalty? Well, one thing is that he was always the first one there and the last one to leave himself. I mean he worked he, – he, I made the point uh, just the other day in Burbank when I gave a talk. You know, I, I showed a picture of him in 68 – Mm-hmm. at the release and a picture of him taken only three years before. Mm-hmm. One shot looked like a young man, fresh-faced guy, you know, and, and, and the shot in 68, he looked like he'd been fighting some dread disease in the hospital because yeah. he'd just been working so hard. He looked utterly exhausted, you know. And another aspect, he did have a very winning, enthusiastic personality. You know, if he took you into his confidence, you were flattered, you know. Mm-hmm. He was not an arrogant person, he was a, but he was a perfectionist, you know, yeah. and he would always ask his collaborators what they thought about what he, his decisions. You know, it was very collaborative, and I hope that the book brings out how truly collaborative this is. Yeah. Most good films, most films are very collaborative, but sometimes you have the, you know, arrogant director who doesn't really want to listen or what have you. Not in this case. You know, and, and with somebody like Freeborn, um, I have a great quote from him in the book where he says, I knew he was just testing me, you know, after another one of these visits from Kubrick where after Stuart had been working for 10 days to get the mask to do this thing, then Kubrick would show up and say, hmm. <laughs> you know, as Freeborn said, he never said, that's great, that's good. No, he always said, hmm. Yeah. And then he would go away, and I knew that he was thinking, well, if the bugger can do that, then maybe he, I can get him to do something else, you know, and then there would be a phone call <laughs> <laughs> from Kubrick saying, well, you know, and as you alluded to, you know, uh, he had worked out this way that the lips would rise and there would be a snarl if they opened their mouth, Yeah, you know, the performers. But then Kubrick wanted their teeth clenched tight with the lips rising and the snarl, you know, which was completely the opposite of everything he'd been, the, the mechanics in the mask. And uh, Freeborn said, well, I knew he was just testing me, but then he figured out how to do it. And then just to answer your question, um, why did people do this? In Stewart's case, he said, I knew that I would never have this opportunity to get this far you know, into a project. I couldn't do it myself. I needed him to push me. And I knew that if I survived, <laughs> he didn't quite say that, but I knew that if I persisted, I would come out the other end with more knowledge than I could possibly use. You know? And he, he said, once I realized that, I was with him all the way. Yeah. 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 One of the things I think is fascinating is your portrayal of Kubrick, really. He, be, he You see how he could be difficult, but also you see how his perfectionism kind of ran in an opposite direction from how he'd often be non-confrontational, especially with actors. He'd be like, let's just try it again. Let's just try it again. And like, I could see where that would be maddening to some people. <laughs> um, what did you like come to understand about Kubrick better from working on this that maybe you didn't know before? Oh, I understood so many things about Kubrick uh, better. And, and I was helped in that by Christiane Kubrick taking me into her confidence, the widow. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a marvelous person. She's super smart, very, very funny. Mm-hmm. And a very sympathetic, um, charismatic person. Right. And, um, and she decided I was worthy of her confidence, and she told me all these things. I mean, for example, she told me that um, he would come back from the studio some days and practically melt down, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, you know, he hadn't—frequently he, he wouldn't have eaten for hours, you know, and he would just have these, 
these uh, meltdowns where he would confide in her that he didn't know, have the slightest idea what he was doing. He didn't know how to end it. He didn't know how to fix this, the problems he was facing. He kept on changing his mind, and it was humiliating, and he felt humiliated, and et cetera. And, he, and she told me this, and, and I said, wait a second. The great Stanley Kubrick was humiliated about all the changes that he was making during the production. She said, oh, yes. I said, but he never gave the slightest sign of that. And she said, well, he knew how to hide it in the studio. I said, he hid it really well. There was not the slightest indication of that from anybody I talked to. And she said, yeah, he hid it really, really well. But he had these I am such an asshole moments all the time. (laughs) She was very profane, (laughs) Christiana. She's a great woman. Well, that uh, kind of, I think, gives us, I want to push into another thing, which is this genius cut from probably the most famous edit in film history, at least one of the, at least in the top five. You cut from the Dawn of Man with uh, Moonwatcher throwing the bone into the air, and it cuts to a spaceship in the year 2001 orbiting the Earth. Um, And you talk at length about, like, how Kubrick kind of came up with that in his own head in the book, but, like... It's not something that was like written down anywhere, right? It was just no. kind of like he thought of it and started to try and make it work. Yes, yeah. I mean, like most of the film was not written down. It's not you can't find it in the script. A lot of what's in that film, you will never find it in a script because it was all done, you know, the night before or on the set that moment. But um, I did talk to Dan Richter about this. You know, deservedly the most famous match cut in the history of cinema is when Moon Watcher having learned how to use the bone as a weapon, you know, and having committed the first murder, mm-hmm. ecstatically throws it into the African sky and it spins upwards. And then there's this match cut. Mm-hmm. And a match cut means, you know, that the shape of the bone was similar to the shape of the spacecraft that you saw in almost the same angle. Yeah. So I'd asked Dan about this because, you know, I was fascinated. I really want, I felt like if I could answer that in this book, I've already gotten somewhere. And Dan didn't know for sure, but he strongly suspected that the idea originated when they were shooting that scene, very famous scene, where, you know, having discovered that he can use the bone to smash the skeleton that he took it from, he was being shot doing that, and he hit a rib bone, and it spun up into the air, and he he thought it was a mistake, and he said, sorry, Stanley. Mm -hmm. Because, by the way, another thing I learned is that he could communicate with Stanley through the mask without moving the face if he wanted to, and they were filming without sound. They added the sound later. And so he said, sorry, Stanley, and and, and Kubrick said, no, no, it's good. Mm-hmm. Work with it. Mm-hmm. Keep on doing it. And so then he was smashing you know, rib bones, and they were spinning into the air. So Dan strongly suspects, and, and he may very well be right, I think he probably is, that that might have been when the idea occurred to Kubrick, that that would be the transition, that that would be a way to make a transition to 2001, you know, four yeah. million years in the future. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. And also it's it kind of introduces this idea of the spacecraft which are so well designed throughout the film, but one of the things that's easy to forget in this age is that they had to do all that practically, whether it was a little model or like when he's walking around the cylindrical track inside the spacecraft. Mm-hmm. Like that's all done practically as well. Uh, it sounds like it was kind of a dangerous <laughs> environment at times. Yeah. Uh, how did they avoid not, you know, uh, killing somebody on this movie? Well, there were accidents, and uh, and in fact, uh, I could never get answer to my own satisfaction what happened to there was one technician who fell three stories from uh-huh. the top of a set. He was adjusting lights, and he fell off, and, and, and you know, my understanding is he broke his back, but he, he did not die. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if he was paralyzed for the rest of his life, and there's, there was no way to find out. There were no records available to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so people did get hurt on the making of the film. There was another electrician whose crowbar hit a live, you know, the equivalent of the third rail in a subway, Mm -hmm. which they had these live um, electricity conduits above the sound stages. And because you couldn't get near them unless you were an an electrician, um, they were not considered dangerous and so forth. But he was up there working on something else when when his uh, big, long wrench touched the third rail – and it melted instantly and poured molten steel mm. uh, on his back, and he was screaming and taken off to the hospital. So there were a number of, of, of injuries. But when it came to the centrifuge, mm-hmm. that rotating, you know, the hamster wheel, so they built the actual thing. You know, it was uh, 38 feet in diameter and m- several tons of weight, and it cost 
one one fourteenth of the budget of the film. Wow. Um, and uh, it was haz- it was a hazardous environment because you had all of these film lights rotating, you know, three hundred and sixty degrees, and and film lights, as Doug Trumbull put put it to me, the visual effects guy, he yeah. said film lights don't like to go upside down, hmm. you know, and so there was a constant shower of broken glass from bulbs that blew. And um, and the actor inside or actors inside, you know, it was hard to get out of there fast. And, yeah. it, you know, it was definitely a, it was a flammable environment. It was just really lucky that nothing happened. Yeah, that's 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 crazy. The movie's famous for being, I guess, I don't want to say inscrutable because people, I think, uh, have sort of parsed out what happens in the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can go online and find an explanation. You can sure. read Clark's novel right. of the movie. But it's famous for being pared down without a lot of explanation what's going on, without a, lot, without a lot of overt explanation of what's going on, and for cutting out a lot of dialogue, for being a very quiet movie, even though there was more dialogue filmed. Why do you feel like Kubrick sort of made that choice to make it that empty, that isolating in some ways? Open to interpretation, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, whenever he had the possibility of making something overtly, of overtly explaining something or making it, only understandable in one way. He always opted for ambiguity. Mm-hmm. And and as a result, you have this masterpiece of opaque and, and intuitive meanings, mm. you know, uh, ambiguous sequences. Yeah. Um, and as a result, the, the viewer brings his or her imagination to the film in a way that's more similar to literature. You know, you read literature and your imagination has to draw a picture. You know, the author helps, but, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're supplying your own imagination. And Kubrick managed to bring that off in this film, despite the fact that, you know, he was, he was shooting at a time when Hollywood block, blockbusters of the budget that he enjoyed, you know, had to be, or mostly were, um, you know, they were like filmed stage plays. Yeah. Um, with lots of dialogue and no uh, room for uh, ambiguity or very little. Mm-hmm. Um, and much later, well, in the fall of 68, Kubrick was asked in, in his Playboy interview, hmm. um, can you explain what it means at the end? You know, And Kubrick said, um, I'm not going to do that. And he said, what would we think if Leonardo had written on the back of the Mona Lisa that the lady is smiling because she's hiding a secret from her lover? Hmm. You know, um, I don't want that to happen. You know, I don't want that kind of thing to happen to 2001, that there's only one meaning. Right. That that makes me think of uh, the computer Hal, who's going to be kind of the next thing everybody knows about the movie, hopefully. And we do have a clip. We have a clip of Hal. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I'm just old enough to remember when there was still a vocal contingent who really didn't like this movie. And their complaint was sort of the only developed character is the computer. And like mm-hmm. that, like the character who has an arc in this movie is Hal. Hal like becomes conscious, becomes murderous, and eventually has to be killed by, mm-hmm. by Dave. I just think about this as a movie about human evolution. And I wonder what – I've always wondered what I, Kubrick and Clark were saying about human evolution – by presenting this artificial intelligence, which is another possible path for human evolution. And I'm, I'm wondering if you uh, had any thoughts about that from having researched it. Sure. Well, thank you for that question, because I think it's it's central to the film and the understanding of the film. And by the way, I would say that those people, which number, which included people like Ray Bradbury, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, we don't know what Isaac Asimov thought, but... Um, um, a lot of people at the end of you know at the end of the film you know when it was first being premiered and first shown um, were criticizing it because Hal was the most human character and, and the human the human beings were emotionless emotionless and seemingly automated mm-hmm. you know as if this wasn't a conscious choice I mean, all you have to do is look at Kubrick's prior work and understand that he was you know. He didn't make random choices. It wasn't a failing. It was an intentional statement about our relationship with technology and what technology was doing to us. Right. You know, mm-hmm. one of many reasons why this film is still relevant today. When they made that film in the late '60s, you know, we didn't have anything like the amount of 
reliance on technology we do now with everybody looking at their at their cell phones most of the day at the expense of looking around them and so mm-hmm. on and so on and so on. Um, and so there are a series of scenes in the film where this is very subtly underlined. So, for example, the birthday party greeting, the birthday greeting from uh, astronaut Frank Poole's parents, you know, when he watches it from a tanning bed. <laughs> and while Hal is in dialogue with him, actually, you know, Hal announces that we have a something from your parents, and then he watches it totally impassively. And then after they sing him happy birthday and see you next Thursday and so yeah. on, he says, okay, thank you, Hal. Pull in the bed, please. Lower the headrest. And, this, you know, it's just – so it's, it's a quietly devastating depiction of the distancing and dehumanization that can result from mediated communications. Yeah. You know? That makes me think of uh, one of the great movies Kubrick didn't make but was made by Steven Spielberg is called AI and is literally about uh, robots replacing humanity mm-hmm. uh, and is uh, a very dark, somber movie in some ways. It's, 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 I really like it. It's one of my favorite Spielbergs. But I did want to ask, uh, you talk in the book about the, how screens, everybody's looking at screens in the movie and like that feels like a thing they got really right about the future. Obviously, we had not colonized the solar system by 2001, but like I don't think the goal of science fiction is pre- to predict the future, but it's fun when it does. What mm-hmm. are some things that this movie uh, sort of accidentally got right? Well, I mean, you know, I isolate uh, in, in the book, um, there, there were a set of production notes before they even started shooting. I think that they were written in November, December. Uh, 65, and and one of them specified how um, the news pad, they had come up with this idea in consultation with IBM that you would have these small handheld tablet computers, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and in the notes, which were really for the production crew to, to figure out how to design and build something so that it looked plausible on the screen, um, they outlined, um, the writer outlined how, um, you know, looking over the shoulder of the astronaut, you should be able to see um, a newspaper screen on the on this tablet computer, mm-hmm. and then in a reverse shot, um, he should be seen looking down. With there can be a small light to illuminate him from below. And I realized when I read that, you know, there there's a first time and a first place when when certain things are described that end up becoming completely ubiquitous in the world. And, you know, in 2018, it is like the most ubiquitous thing to be seen in the human species from Africa to Asia to, you know, North America, South America. is somebody looking down at a screen in the evening lit from below. Yeah. But it may very well have been the first time this was ever described is in those production notes. And then they proceeded to build, you know, an iPad-like IBM labeled uh, mm. tablet computer, and then the astronauts are seen wa- watching the BBC News on it, and so mm. forth. Mm. Um, and uh, just a final note there: um, when Apple sued Samsung for imitating its iPad design with yeah. their tablet computer, and they went to court in California, Samsung wanted to show clips from 2001 to defend themselves, <laughs> and it was ruled out by the judge. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit about finding the, the voice of Hal, because I thought that was an interesting section. They actually had cast somebody else in the part and then went with a different actor. Yes, yes. Yeah. So they had um, they had a British actor on the set for a while, but he, was con- he sounded too British. Um, they had uh, an American character actor who actually recorded Hal, and Kubrick was at first enthusiastic. Um, and his name escapes me at this very moment. Martin Balsam, I believe. Yes, indeed. Sorry. Yeah, Martin Balsam, who had won an Oscar, mm-hmm. uh, and and there he was um, in the studio. And Kubrick didn't know what he wanted yet. That was part of his process. You know, he would find out what he wanted by actually producing things and directing rather than necessarily conceiving of it in, in advance. Uh, he was enthusiastic about Balsam, Balsam's readings, but then he, you know, as time passed, he became aware that he had allowed Balsam to sound too emotional, mm. uh, too human. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, he actually he ended up. And I mentioned earlier in this in the podcast that um, they had worn out. Kubrick had worn out a print of that Canadian production, you know, CBC production, Universe documentary mm. about the universe. Uh, the narrator of that was was um, Douglas Rain, you know, Shakespearean actor from Toronto. And so when Kubrick realized he needed a replacement for Hal's voice, he um, he actually he cast Rain to do the narrative voiceover of 2001 because there was the intention was to have a narrative voiceover on 2001 up until fairly late in the story. Yeah. So he had already hired Rain 
Douglas Rain, Rain flew in, and instead of doing the, the narrative voiceover, he did Hal. Wow. The final thing, because we're, we're heading into the end here, the final thing I wanted to talk about is the last 15 to 20 minutes of this movie, which are utterly mind-boggling and wonderful. And it's when the movie just like sort of takes off into some other atmosphere that I don't think any other movie has quite approached. And that was the first thing Kubrick shot, made it into that, and they were working on it right up until the end. Tell me about just kind of how they pulled together this this long sequence of very strange things. Yeah, well, actually, it's a perfect segue from the universe film, again, mm-hmm. because the technique pioneered by Wally Gentleman, the visual effects pioneer behind universe, was to use – this is pre-digital. Everything had to be analog, and, and he pioneered using tanks of paint thinner, mm. lighting them – with multiple highly you know powerful film lights filming at a high frame rate to make slow motion mm. and dropping um drops of different colored paint into black paint thinner mm-hmm. and uh the result could be when it worked correctly a simulation of a starburst or an expanding star cluster or uh, nebulae kind of coiling and fuming and, you know, ionized hydrogen is what yeah. a nebula is. And these effects were achievable. The universe was black and white, actually, mm-hmm. which is interesting. But um, Kubrick took that idea, and then in, in 1965, in the, sp- in the spring and summer of 65, uh, rented an abandoned brazier factory uh, in the Upper West Side and uh, hired an effects company, a very small effects company called Effects You All. Mm-hmm. The first frames shot of 2001, Kubrick was on camera and they were dropping paint into paint thinner called banana oil mm-hmm. and getting these effects of, of galaxies expanding and star clusters and so forth. Mm. I learned about this in part from Christian Kubrick, who told me about how ridiculously disgusting, you know, the stink <laughs> was, and that there, that bacteria would grow, and you know, in these disgusting tanks, you know, and and, mm. and and that Stanley would come back at three in the morning with his eyes red and swollen from the paint fumes. So that was for the Stargate sequence that ended up becoming the trip sequence, you know, mm. after Dave Bowman, the only survivor of the Discovery mission to Jupiter enters into this wormhole or what have you, you know, some kind of space-time trip. Um, and um, so that was part of what you see there. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're kind, of, we're kind of at the end now, but I do want to ask, I was thinking about if you were going to make this movie today, what would be different about it? Like, I think it would be more tuned into political issues of the moment, things like that. But I don't know if you could get this movie made today. Like, even if you had a Stanley Kubrick alive, if you had somebody at that level, which uh, arguably we don't, do you think that there's still attempts to make movies like this today? Or do you think the film industry has sort of been scared off? Because uh, if this movie had failed, it would have probably ended MGM. As you yeah, that's out. true. It would have been Heaven's Gate 10 years before Heaven's Gate. Yeah. You know, um, it's a great question. I don't know. I mean, visual effects, uh, you know, the cost of production is way down. Mm-hmm. If you want, you can do all kinds of things with a, you know, with a good Canon SLR and um, and and uh, off-the-shelf post, uh, post-production uh, visual effects. Um, I'm not sure that it's out of the question that we'll have another inspired genius who comes along and blows us away. Yeah. It's just that, you know, um, a work of art at the level that Kubrick achieved with 2001, it's it's really rare. Yeah. You know, I mean, he was really and, – and I don't want to downplay, in fact, the opposite, the involvement of Clark. Mm-hmm. That was a perfect collaboration. Kubrick alone could be kind of cold and kind of cynical, mm-hmm. you know. And 2001 is not – exactly warm and touchy-feely. No. But you do have this uh, kind of compound creation between Clark's techno-utopian optimistic view of things mm-hmm. and, and Kubrick's skeptical, rather chilly view of things. And that made a kind of a perfect collaboration. It was I've been comparing it to Lennon and McCartney. Mm. You yeah. know, um, so the star child at the end, which was a redemptive, you know, certainly readable as a redemptive uh, redemptive note, the rebirth of the species, that was Clark's idea. Mm. Um, but of course it came, but it took Kubrick's genius and, you know, and vision to, 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 to say, that's the one we want. That's the alternate ending we want, Arthur. Right. You know. Right. Well, that's a great note to end on. The book is Space Odyssey, uh, Stanley Kubrick, Arthur Clark, and the making of a masterpiece. Michael Benson, thank you for joining us. Hey, it was really a fun thing. If there is 
a podcast in your feed that is a weekly exploration of the limits of human progress and our constant striving to evolve toward a higher being. It's I Think You're Interesting, hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwer. In case you haven't guessed, that's me some of the time. Some of the time I'm a highly evolved star child. My producer is Bridget Armstrong. Uh, Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishat Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our audio engineering and our studio are thanks to P3 Post here in Hollywood, California. Our recording engineer, as always, is Jay Brooks. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or whatever. It really helps us get the word out about the show, helps us continue to get great guests. You can email me at Todd at Vox.com if you have something you want to say, a guest you want to recommend, something like that. You can email the whole show at ityi.podcast at Vox.com, itye.podcast at Vox.com. You can also tweet at me at TVOTI, tweet at me at Tavoti. We're going to be back next week, and we're heading into May, and we're going to be doing some some interesting things in May, so you're definitely going to want to check it out because I think uh, our next episode is going to be a lot of fun, and you're going to like it. I think you're going to like all our episodes, but maybe the next one especially. But... Until then, please, if somebody asks you to open the pod bay doors, just do it. Just just be be a good chap and do it. Come on. I'm afraid I can't do that.